0: We are in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. If you would like to turn there in your Bibles, it is difficult to go through the torture of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads up to His death on a cruel Roman cross, an instrument of torture. But it was necessary that His blood be shed so that ours might be spared. He bled and died, and Isaiah warned us, 750 years before Christ was born, that by His stripes we are healed. We're healed physically, we're touched in our spirit, we're healed spiritually, forgiven all of our sins. The saddest day in history and the gladdest day of history were only three days apart, But understand, the disciples didn't see it at the time. They were walking through it. They didn't have the hindsight that we have because of the gospel record that we hold in our hands. They didn't have that advantage. So we have to put ourselves in their shoes sometimes and wonder if we'd have acted any differently at all. They didn't understand so much. You ever found yourself, uh, I simply don't understand what goes on. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I don't understand life. I don't understand people. And some of you aren't even pastors asking yourselves those questions. A lot of a lot of pastors do. A ministry is hard. Life is hard. Work is hard. Family relationships are difficult. But the hope that is given to there, church is found in this chapter. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever else is going on in your life, understand that at the cross your eternal destiny was settled, and the defeat of our spiritual enemies and physical enemies was settled once for all. The things that we have to go through between here and the time that we see Him in glory are small and inconsequential, according to people like the great Apostle Paul. These light and momentary afflictions, he said. And that's the way I need to look at life. Regardless of what happens, regardless of health issues or financial setbacks or, or issues and parking lots at Walmart, the list can go on and on and on. But the hope that we have is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that it is the hinge upon which all of history turns. It is everything. Everything in the Bible builds up to this. Everything subsequent to this flows out of the power of the resurrection. In Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he breathed on his disciples, said, receive the Holy Spirit. They did, and then you've got Pentecost, the birth of the church, and things have been moving forward ever since. The kingdom of God is spreading constantly and in ways and places that you and I have no idea of, and we need to rejoice in that. I'm not a missionary, but I sure love helping missionaries out. I want them to be good stewards of all that God puts in their hands. I want the lost saved. It's easy to condemn our enemies politically and otherwise and say, well, we should wipe them all out. And there is a part of our flesh that wants that. But then our spirit steps in and says, isn't it better that they be saved? Like the terrorist, the apostle Paul, who had previously been Saul, persecuting viciously the church. It would have been easy for his enemies to say, especially the zealots that were listed amongst the 12 of Jesus' disciples, can't we just kill him? Can't we just be done with him? God had a different plan. How about we save him? It's tantamount to Osama bin Laden getting saved instead of shot in the head. And then spreading that gospel to all of the Islamic world today. That that would be radical. So we pray for our missionaries, but their work becomes possible. The commission to go out is commanded for us here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we begin here in verse 1, when the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene, mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might fully and completely finish the anointing that had been done by Joseph of of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. That's why we gather on Sunday. People often ask, well, how come the church doesn't uh, worship on Saturday like the Jews did? A, we're not Jews. B, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the early church did. From this point forward, everybody, all of the Christians that are, are listed for us in Scripture from here to Revelation, were meeting on the first day of the week. I'm not a Jew. I don't keep the Jewish laws. Inter- interesting, when you study the Sabbath, it says that that was a covenant that God established between himself and Israel. Are there any Israelis here this morning? Oh, that's why we worship on Sunday, not Saturday. You're not Jewish. You're not Israeli. You're not a Messianic Jew. We're free by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would write the Colossian church and say, well, some of you think one day is more special than another. Can I tell you? Other people think that all days are equally glorious to God. So let's not get hung up on, uh, on those things. But the Sabbath was over in Jewish circles in the first century uh, about 6 p.m. on Saturday evening. So now it's the pre-dawn hours of that first Sunday, the first day of the week. And they, they wanted to finish the work that had been hurriedly and rushed uh, when he was anointed because the Sabbath was approaching. Now that it's come and gone, these faithful women want to complete that work. I want you to notice, first of all, none of his own disciples anticipated a resurrection. I mean, How many times did Jesus say, I'll be betrayed in the hands of man, I'll be crucified, but on the third day I'll rise again. He never prophesied his betrayal and his death on the cross without saying, but on the third day I'll rise. And yet, somehow or another, it escaped everyone's attention. In fact, some record, some of the Gospels record the disciples coming to Jesus said. What do you mean raised on the third day? We don't get it. And yet they had heard Jesus tell his adversaries, no sign will be given you except that of Jonah, that as he was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. And yet they didn't make that connection. He's coming back alive. There were recordings of resurrections throughout the Old Testament, but they struggled with that. You might today... Mostly because you probably have never seen anyone resurrected. What you personally have not experienced, you tend to dismiss. That's just the nature that we possess, the old sinful fallen nature that questions everything. So the gospel accounts give us a whole host of people numbering over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who saw him after he was killed on the cross. The testimony that our faith stands upon is deep. It was blood-bought. The Sabbath is over. Saddest day of the disciples' lives, no doubt, in my mind. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, after, just after sunrise, they started out in the pre-dawn hours, and just as they get to the tomb, the sun is rising, and they made their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say exactly 72 hours transpired from the second that Jesus died on the cross and the stopwatch came when, when the, the expression is used, after three days you'll rise again. That's simply a very common and vernacular idiom that's common in all languages and doesn't mean exactly and precisely 72 hours. It's two parts of a day and one part in between over the course of those three days. It was such a large stone that had been placed over the mouth of the sepulchre that the ladies had no idea how they were going to move it. it. In fact, I found a 2nd century Codex Bize that contains a gloss, a comment in the side of the margin by this passage that said it was a stone so large 20 men couldn't roll it away. What they would do is they would hollow out a cave because there is no dirt in Israel. It's a living limestone. So they would bury their dead in above-ground sepulchres. It was easier to do that, but then they would put a trough in front of it and a very, very large disk of stone that once rolled away would roll downhill, and it's easy to roll it downhill, and then they'd put a little stopper plug in the bottom, and that's how it was secured, but it was a large slab of stone often, yay thick, and it may have been anywhere from six, seven, eight feet in diameter, would have weighed tons. So these ladies, you're wondering, how are we, little old three ladies, going to roll this massive slab of rock? How are we going to roll it uphill in that trench that was dug for it? How are we going to do that? (laughs) God already took care of it. Isn't it interesting how often you and I think in the flesh? Man, that's going to be hard. For who? Only for you. There's nothing difficult for God. God. But we often forget that, don't we? Oh, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to do that? How am I going to do this? Trust God. Don't just always think in the natural. Start thinking in supernatural ways because this whole chapter is supernatural. The resurrection is supernatural. The life and ministry of Jesus was supernatural. But we always get stuck in our heads because we're creatures of a sinful, fallen world that, well, I can't figure it out. Okay, trust God. Well, maybe the doctors have the answers. Maybe they don't, but God does. Maybe while going to the doctors, we should be praying about these things. Trust God. Who will roll the stone away? Verse 3 records, they said, of the tomb. And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, the word is mega in the Greek had been rolled away. It's already a done deal. In other words, all of the problems that you and I anticipate, who's going to roll this stone away in my life? Who's going to deal with this financial setback or this doctor's diagnosis? You know, sometimes you find the stone's already been rolled away. And all you got to do is walk into the tomb by faith and make your supplications before God. Don't worry about who's going to roll the stone away. That's not a big deal. God can do that. He does that all day long. Don't think in the natural. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been removed. I wonder how many times we worry and think about the things that God says, I've already taken care of that. Why do you worry about that? God's already got a plan. He already knows how your life and mine are going to turn out, what health issues are going to come up, what financial setbacks or relationships go south. God already has a plan for every one of them. Walk by faith. Don't whine, don't murmur, don't grumble, don't complain. Don't try to figure it out yourself. That's like an amoeba trying to figure out Albert Einstein and his general theories of relativity. That's not going to happen. God is God, and his ways are not our ways. His, his thoughts not our thoughts. It keeps us in dependence upon him. Then they saw a young man, in verse 5, as they entered the tomb, The stone had been rolled away, so they walked inside the tomb. I have been inside this tomb. And they saw a young man, what appeared to be a young man, dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. As I walked into the the, the empty sepulcher in Israel a number of years ago, on the right side is a sitting area, and on the left side are the burial niches that were carved out of solid rock. But there was only one that was finished all of the rest were roughly hewn out in anticipation of needs fa- of the family later on. But only one of the niches was completely flat and completely dressed. And on the other side, where there was the bench where the mourners would sit. And so this angel is sitting over there like, see the empty spot there? He's gone. He's gone. He's not there anymore. He's stating the obvious. But they didn't know why he wasn't there anymore. Mary, the other gospels say, came back to the tomb later on and she found somebody she thought was the gardener, not recognized it to be Jesus. And she said, sir, if if you've moved his body, tell me where it's at and I'll go get him. Like she's going to haul Jesus' body over her shoulder like a fireman and carry him out. Jesus doesn't need our help. Did you hear that? Jesus doesn't need our help. This is not a cooperative effort. Well, I'll grunt and groan a little bit, God, and you grunt and groan a little bit, and we'll get this done together. All we need is God. Our strength, our resources are so limited. Our understanding so microscopic compared to his. But then the greatest news that man has ever heard is uttered by this angelic being. While they see him, they are alarmed. He says in verse 6, Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. The three greatest words put together in the whole New Testament. He has risen. It's interesting, the angel words it in such a way in in the exacting language of Koine Greek at some particular point in time. Jesus was passively, he didn't do it himself, but the Father raised him from the dead. It's in the indicative mood, which means it really happened. It wasn't a fanciful notion of ours. It wasn't something we were anticipating. It's a miraculous and supernatural act of God. Jesus didn't do this. The disciples didn't do this. The angels saying, I didn't do this. But this is what the Father did to Jesus. He raised his own son from the dead to pay for the sins of mankind you can't look for the living among the dead Amen. there are countries around the world that worship their ancestors you can't look for the living among the dead the japanese shinto culture venerates their dead there's nothing wrong with the veneration but they are not to be worshiped and we can't find our answers in a, in a tomb that's occupied whether by buddha or Confucius, or Muhammad, you can't look for answers for life in a tomb that houses the dead. Jesus alone, Jesus alone has risen. He is not here, the angel said, but see the place where they laid him. The burial cloths, according to the Gospel of John, were still there. The, the winding sheet that he'd been wrapped in and the napkin that had been placed over his face, they were still there, but the body was gone. So the angel saying, pat it, it's just linen. Nobody's there. Jesus is risen. But then here's what you guys need to do in verse 7, and I I love this. But go tell his disciples, and Peter. You know, there's a part of me that the angel was probably thinking, yeah, and tell that loser, Peter, yeah, him included, yeah, the guy who denied the risen Lord three times, yeah, that guy, tell him. Yeah, tell him that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as as he told you. You know, after Peter's threefold denial of Christ that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26, this is a, an amazing thing to me. Peter had not been able to forgive himself, but the angel tells the ladies he's already forgiven. He's already forgiven. How can I say that? How many of your sins that you've ever committed Are forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them. How many of your sins in the future did Jesus already know you were going to commit? All of them. And he paid the price for every one of them. It doesn't justify our sins. But he knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. And the only difference really between Judas Iscariot and Peter was Peter had the good sense when he recognized his own moral failure, went out and wept bitterly. He had disqualified himself for ministry. He said, I've sinned too much. This, I'm sure he was the most depressed guy in all of Galilee. At his failure, he had just bragged, Jesus, if all of the rest of them leave you, I'll never leave you. Beware of self-confidence that borders on Arrogance. I could never commit that sin. Oh, I could never deny Jesus. Really? Are you made of different flesh than Peter was? Peter had denied Christ three times. What amazes me is he is now included in this angelic annunciation. Tell Peter he's forgiven. He's still got a place in ministry. I still love him. The sins that are the worst sins you and I face are the ones that we can't forgive ourselves for. And every single person in this room has some of those. Maybe the the person that you offended forgave you. Maybe it's some secret sin that you thought you committed between you and God. Nobody but God knows about that, but you have difficulty forgiving yourself for that failure. You're in good shoes. Peter's exactly the same place. Can I tell you what? If you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. You need to hear that as much as Peter did. Peter said, I'm not forgiven. Who could forgive such a horrendous thing that I've done? I've denied them. I walked with him for three and a half years. I walked on water. I healed the the, the sick. I opened the eyes of the blind. As Jesus said, we fed the 5,000. I saw all that stuff. I was there. Jesus used me, the least of all men. What did I do in response? I denied him three times. I can't possibly be forgiven. There is no sin you could commit that can't be forgiven. If you will, in humility, take that to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him wash that away. You are not greater than God. If God has forgiven you, who do you think you are that you are not able to forgive yourself. Are you greater than God? Sometimes you just got to let the past go or it'll haunt you. Satan will keep dragging your failures back up in your face constantly. Know this, dearest friends. You are forgiven. All sin. Past, present, and future. Jesus loves you. The angel could have been really harsh. Go and tell all of the disciples, well, of course, except Peter. Let the loser sit on the bench because he's never going to play again. There is such grace that I find in these words such hope, such encouragement. You and I are under the false impression that when you and I fail, that God's somehow or another mad at us, that we've disappointed him. Oh, no, he saw it coming in eternity past every failure that you'll ever commit, every denial, every awkward moment, every sin, every selfish act. He paid the price for it all. We are not worthy of it. I do not deserve it. That's why it's called grace instead of merit. If merit got you into heaven, your dog would go to heaven and you would not. Think about that for a second. Jesus is not mad at us when we fail. He is not angry with us. We have not forfeited our salvation. He knew it was coming long before it did. And he bled and died to forgive it. He loves you that much. Sometimes we think when we sin, God's up there going, Oh, my, I did not see that coming. My mouth, what am I gonna do now? Hey, hey. God knew all of it in advance, and it didn't surprise him. And he loves you, he's not mad at you, and wants to forgive you. All that's required is your humility, your repentance. And forgiveness and restoration are yours. But you gotta take that stuff to the cross constantly, or it'll lead you alive. The only difference between Peter and Judas, the betrayer, was that one repented one would rather commit suicide than to repent. Wow, that's a stubborn person. They would rather commit suicide than repent. But isn't suicide epidemic in America today? People left and right, oh, somebody disliked me on Facebook. They unfriended me. So you're going to commit suicide? Get a life. What is wrong with you? Repent. I don't want to repent. I can't turn to Christ. I'd rather commit suicide. I'm suicidal. I'm suicidal. I hear that time without number out of this in this generation. Suicidal, it's, it's become such a cop out. It's like people saying, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I won't repent of my sins. So I'm just going to check out. Like you know something about the afterlife? Do you know anything about heaven or hell from personal experience? I can tell you from my knowledge of the Bible, one is a place you want to go and one is a place you don't. So you best be willing to repent of those sins. But I am amazed at the lie that Satan foists upon the world today. It's easier to commit suicide and check out than to repent of your sins and be forgiven. All it requires to be forgiven is a little humility, a little confession, a little repentance. That's all it takes. If there is any dis- distance in your relationship between you and God today, the only thing that caused that distance is, is re- sin that has not been dealt with. Whether that sin is negligence of His Word or prayer, negligence of devotion to Him. But the only thing that stands in your way of getting rid of that stuff is a humble heart of prayer and repentance. Lord, I'm sorry. I sinned. I Forgive me in Jesus' name. And you can be washed and cleansed and restored. You can enjoy that intimacy again that characterized the moment you got saved. You want that again? Jesus died to give it to you on a daily basis. What stands in the way? Yeah, mostly us. Mostly us. I'm too busy to read, too busy to pray. and my schedule, this, that. Got to mow the lawn. Can I tell you, Jesus doesn't care if you get to mow your lawn or not. He'd rather be on your face before him, letting him just love on you. And it says in verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They're going to tell the disciples, they said nothing to anyone else because they were afraid. There is a healthy reverence for God. There is a phobia. I mean, you don't hook up with angels uh, dressed in white that have stood in the presence of God without a little of this fear uh, that that is involved, but I want to touch on these closing verses because you'll notice right after verse 8, there's a line in your Bible, and it says something like this right afterwards. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Do you have something like that in your Bible? Let me see your hands. Hands up? Okay. Today you get to use your whiteout and just white that out, white out the line because I'm going to give you just a little sampling of some of the proof that says every single bit of this text that you have before you is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. You may have not ever heard the arguments for that, but some people say, "Well, you know, it's not found in the in the earliest and most ancient manuscripts like the uh, Codex Sinaiticus." Okay, that was written about 350. AD, contains the complete New Testament. It's not found in in the the Vaticanus, which was written about 325 AD. These are very important manuscripts because they have the new and portions of the Old Testament or all of the Old Testament in them. They are some of the oldest ones that we have, but it is interesting to me that this longer ending of Mark is found in the Codex Alexandrinus of the 5th century. And I think there. here's a, just a few reasons why we must include verses 9 through 20 in, in the Word of God. For the first four centuries of the church's existence, these early church fathers, as they're called, in fact, there's an even uh, a library called the Anti Nicene Church Fathers, which means before the Council of Nicaea in 325, here's all of the writings we have from the early church. And universally, they express confidence in this longer ending of Mark. Universally, long before these codexes were put together into the book form that they were, individual writers steeped in church history, important figures in, in the early church, referred to this longer ending and quoted it often. It is fascinating to me. For instance, there was a guy by the name of Iranius who lived from about 130 to 202. He was very early Christian writer, theologian, and minister who f- spent his whole life defending orthodoxy and fighting heresies. And he wrote in his book against heresies and quoted different portions right here out of this long ending of Mark. He had access to it. is living about 200 years before Cyanaticus or Vaticanus were ever copied, he knew the longer ending of Mark. That's authoritative to me. There was a gentleman by the name of Justin Martyr who was born about 100 A.D. Boy, that puts him within the lifetime of the early, within the 70 disciples that surrounded the throne, the throne of Christ as he did his earthly ministry. Justin Martyr was one of the first and best apologists for the Christian faith, and in his book, First Apology, he words, uses words found in Mark 1620 as a fulfillment of the biblical prophecies about Messiah. Found in Psalm 110. He had a student named Tatian who was born about 120 A.D., a writer and a theologian in his own right. He incorporates material from all of the Gospels and includes Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. After him, a writer by the name of Hippolytus. All of these predate these ancient texts, these important manuscripts by hundreds of years. They f- were familiar with Mark's material here. Hippolytus was a contemporary of Irenaeus. He was bishop of Potus near Rome from 190 to 227 AD. And he quotes frequently from this very passage that we have before us. In other words, they thought it to be authoritative and legitimate. So if Irenaeus, Justin, Martyr, Tatian, Hippolytus and all, were very early Christian men, if they believed in it, if they were born and raised uh, when they talked with people that had seen Jesus, that had heard Jesus as youngsters and, and teens, uh, some of the 70 disciples were undoubtedly still alive. And yet they all made reference to this closing portion of Mark's gospel. It belongs in your Bible. It belongs in your Bible. I know it's not in the two major codices, Sinaitic and Vatican. So what? Those were whole libraries of New and Old Testament. But there were individual early church fathers that made constant reference to this. It belongs in your Bible. They felt it belonged in your Bible. They knew this passage. They cited it often throughout their works. And notice that all of their letters were older than the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark. Writers in the 200s, the 300s, the 400s, I've got names that you have never heard of that all attest to this longer ending of Mark that were written long before Vaticanus and uh, the earlier versions that that were put together came out. Porphyry, for example, uh, another gentleman by the, the... the name of Vicentius, Ambrose, Jerome. The list goes on and on. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, many other church fathers quoted this passage. Aphrahat, mm-hmm. whose name I'd never heard of before. Uh, Heracles, uh, in Aphrahat in his Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Fortinatus, Epiphanius, Ambrose, Palladius. The list goes on and on. In fact, that last count, get this. 1,653 Greek manuscripts include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Three don't have it. To me, the evidence is overwhelming. This belongs in your Bible. It's legit. Some of the critics say, well, you know, there's some words that are not found elsewhere in the gospel of Mark. I can point to you half a dozen different chapters in Mark where he introduces a new word or phrase that's not found elsewhere in his work. So what? I don't usually use the word anti-disestablishmentarianism in most of my writings to individual people, one of the longest words in the English language. But that doesn't mean that I can't use it once in a while. There's a tremendous amount of external evidence for Mark 16, 9 through 20, in the first five centuries of, of the church. But there are in, in Mark eight other 12-verse segments like this where Mark has even more unusual words. He's not limited in his vocabulary. So with that settled, and you can pen, with your pen cross out the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses don't have it. Most of them do. 1,653 of them do, three don't. Which side do you want to choose? The evidence is overwhelming to me. Case closed. End of discussion. So verse 9 then continues. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Wow. How many demons has he driven out of you? How many more need to go? Any area of your flesh that you still allow Satan access to? Pornography? Drugs? Lust, don't want to get too personal here or step on too many toes, but these are the ways that Satan gets a foothold in the life of a legitimate born-again Christian. Negligence of God's Word, lack of prayer, the list goes on and on. Don't give Satan a foothold in those areas. Verse 10, she went out and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping, and when they heard that Jesus was alive, and that she had seen him, they did not believe. doesn't say they could not believe. This is a matter of the will. It's a matter of, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Now you want me to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I'm not going to believe that. You remember that John's gospel records one of the disciples saying, unless I see the risen Lord, unless I put my finger in the nail prints in his hand, and thrust my hand into the spear wound on his side. I will not believe. It's not that he couldn't believe. He refused to believe. The evidence was overwhelming. (laughs) Jesus wasn't there. The Romans didn't have him. The Jews didn't have him. The disciples didn't have the body of Christ. Body, body, what happened to the body? The angel said it. He's risen. What part of that don't you get? He's been raised from the dead. It's confirmed in John's gospel, John chapter 20, and you can read all about that there. They did not believe, verse 12, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. That's, the, that's what the gospel of Luke has about the two Emmaus Road disciples. All of a sudden, bing, Jesus shows up and he's walking with them, and, Jesus, and they're talking and Jesus asks these guys without revealing himself to them, he what are you guys talking about? Oh, what? Are you a, a newbie here in town? You've not heard of the things that have gone on recently about the Christ, the Messiah, and his crucifixion? And Jesus pretended dumb and says, like, like what things? What, what, what are you talking about? And after they shared the story of what had happened to the Messiah, Jesus started sharing Scripture with them about, don't you realize all of these things were prophesied, especially in Isaiah, and had to come to pass? And then they said, you know, you're a fascinating guy to talk to. We're just about to park here for the night at this hotel and break some bread. Why don't you, why don't you have dinner with us? And Jesus said, yeah, okay. And they all sat down together, and Jesus te- took the bread and the wine, and he broke it. And instantly, he disappeared. They're setting down for communion. And then they freaked out. They said, that was Jesus. No wonder he knew the Old Testament so well. We struggle with that. But when he broke bread, our eyes were open, and it was Jesus Two Emmaus Road disciples. Verse 13 of Mark's gospel says, they returned and reported it to the rest of the disciples, but they did not believe them either. Well, what does it take for you to believe exactly? What would it take? How much evidence do you need to see? How big of a critic are you? For some people, no amount of evidence is sufficient. To the Pharisees that crucified Christ, they didn't care if he was the Messiah. He got in the way of their political and religious ambitions. He had to go. It's not that they couldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. Jesus said, if you don't believe the things that I'm saying to you guys, then believe for the miracles sake that I, these miracles that I do. That should cause you to believe in me, that I'm the Messiah. Nope. We are not going to believe. So they didn't mind crucifying someone they thought was expendable and was indeed not, in their eyes anyway, the Messiah at all. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples. Notice that Judas is carried is gone. So there's 11 of them left. And as they were eating, Jesus just, ping, appeared. The other gospel accounts give us that information. Jesus showed up and he appeared to one, to to most of the guys, but one was absent. And so Jesus reveals himself to to 10 of the guys and they see him and they break bread with him. They were afraid thinking he was a ghost. And then the one critic said, unless I put my finger in his nail prints, I will not believe. Despite overwhelming evidence. Sometimes when you share your faith with other people, they do the same thing. Well, show me Jesus, then I'll believe. Yeah, let him come down off the cross, the Pharisee said. Then we'll believe he's the Messiah. No, they wouldn't. They had already made up their minds. Well, can you prove to me that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, what about this in the Bible? What about this contradiction? What about that? And, and people try to bamboozle you with the questions so they don't have to get real about their relationship with the living God and the sins that stand in the way. Sometimes you cast your pearls before swine. If they're not ready, walk away. Jesus didn't say harvest green grain. He said the fields are ripe unto harvest. Some people are ready. The people that aren't, walk away from You don't try to force feed people the gospel, but you look for open doors to share the gospel. And God will often use those opportunities for you to say something of eternal importance. Speaking the the Word of God into somebody's life, what privilege. Choose. Choose to believe. Choose to believe. Verse 14, so he appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal. Don't do this. You don't want to be hard-hearted, stiff-necked, or stubborn with the Lord. They had refused to believe those who, who had seen him after he had risen. And then we've got what follows is the great commission that we're so familiar with out of Matthew 28 and our Spanish brother shared with us this morning. And simply the great commission is this verse 15. Tell everybody. Amen. Tell everybody what? Jesus risen from the dead, the Messiah of the world, it's God's own son come to save us from our sins and everybody needs him because all have sinned. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It took me 5 seconds to say that. Do you have 5 seconds for the Lord? then share that with other people. It's only Satan striking your heart with fear that stands in the way of you sharing the gospel. Well, what will people think? I may get fired. Maybe they'll mock me, make fun of me. Well, unless they're going to crucify you, I wouldn't give that one a second thought. Who cares what they think? Tell them about Jesus because they're on their way to hell apart from him. And the one and only conversation you have with them about Jesus may be the one and only opportunity they ever hear in their entire life about Jesus Christ. Don't be a All Christian. What's that mean? Only your hairdresser knows for sure whether you're really a Christian or not. You know, you're a All Christian, really? Like some secret disciple or something? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this life, I'll be ashamed of you in the one to come. You want to be careful with that one. You want to be proud and stand up for Jesus Christ. That's it. Go tell the world. Verse 15, he said to them, go into the whole world and preach the good news, the good news that we have sinned but can be forgiven. And preach it to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Stop right there because verse 16 does not teach baptismal regeneration. In fact, the omission of baptized with unbelief, does not believe, would seem to show that Jesus does not make baptism essential to salvation. Condemnation rests on you refusing to believe. That's what condemnation is Not whether on you were baptized or not. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. You've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. So when you're baptized, publicly, there is that public declaration of your faith in him and him alone. And it's a perfect picture of coming up out of the grave yourself and of walking in the newness of life that Christ died to give us. But baptism doesn't save you or the thief on the cross didn't make it into paradise when Jesus himself said that he would that very day. When did he get baptized exactly? Do I believe that you should be baptized? Absolutely. Is it a matter of salvation? No. It's simply an outward manifestation of something that's already inwardly taken place. Some people are hydrophobic, fearful of water. Some people express that fear. Well, Pastor Jim, how long are you going to hold me under? And I ask them, how much have you sinned? (laughs) For some people, I ask them if they've brought their scuba gear. We've all sinned and fallen short the glory of God, though. It's not the length of time that you're held under water that washes your sins away. It's your identification with the finished work of Jesus Christ. There, there's no baptismal regeneration found here in verse 16. Whoever believes, word it in such a way that you continuously continue to believe. The parable of the four soils tell us that not everybody who walks the aisle or bows the knee or cries at the altar is saved if they can walk away from that. They walked into it, they can walk away from that. You already know some people that have, that believed for a while and then fell away. Just like Jesus said in the parable of the soils. There's four different kinds of soils that the Word of God, the seed of God falls upon. Some spring up right away, and sometimes the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth and, and riches things, and they walk away from the Lord. I think COVID-19 was in part a test of the church because when COVID-19 hit, half of the church walked away and never came back. Half of the church, true for every pastor I've talked to, where they disappeared and they never came back. What kind of soil is that? There was no fruit, 30, 60, 90, 100 fold that Jesus talks about in Matthew's gospel. We live in a day and age. Didn't Jesus say... That when he comes again, the love of many would wax cold in Matthew 24. That's in part what you're seeing. People to walk away from the Lord and they seem to be okay with that. Whoever believes and continues to believe and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So your condemnation is based on whether you have chosen to believe or not. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. Now, people that don't believe in supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit don't like verse 17. They are what is called cessationists. People like John MacArthur and acolytes like him that say, oh, the Holy Spirit's not moving today. Really? Did he stay in the tomb while Jesus rose? So the Holy Spirit's dead today? And those same people that don't believe in the manifestational gifts of like speaking in tongues and and prophecy and things like that that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14, they disbelieve it. They refuse to believe it because they haven't personally experienced it. We tend to dismiss the things that are not part of our personal experience. Have any of you ever jumped out of a perfectly good airplane with a parachute on? Well, just because you personally haven't experienced it, and those of you that have, you need prayer, right after service, we will anoint you with oil, cast that demon right out of you. Why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane when you can fly it and park it on the ground, and not take a chance whether your ripcord will actually open the chute or not? I don't know, but that's a topic for a different time in discussion. Oh, there is also a verse that says, don't put the Lord your God to a foolish test, Maybe that's included, maybe not. I don't know. I'm just saying, just saying. We're supposed to go into the whole world, but these signs, verse 17, will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. Well, they already had when Jesus sent out his disciples, hadn't they? Even Judas Iscariot was casting out demons, and they were able to do that afterwards. I believe that half of the mental institutions in America could be cleaned out if we just cast out demons. We'd rather medicate them so we don't have to dirty our hands. Some of you are paralyzed with fear about casting out a demon. Why? The Bible says greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan is scared to death. You're going to find out how much power you have someday. But there's been plenty of demons in this church. Sometimes people bring in those demons with them when they come to church. They need to be cast out. You can take an active part in that. The early disciples did. Secondly, it says they will speak in new tongues. Well, doesn't Paul talk about that in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 14 like it was an everyday occurrence in the early church, at least in Corinth? Is tongues still available today? There are some that say, no, they ceased. The manifestational gifts, they ceased with the close of the apostolic era. Where does it say that in Scripture? It doesn't. My Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was casting out demons and people speaking in tongues back then, why do we not need that same gifting today? God is alive and well, dear friends. He has not ceased being God. I do not believe in cessationism because it's not biblical. I don't know how I could be any clearer than that. If you be, if you like John MacArthur great. I do too. Love his commentaries. He's rich in history, knows the original languages well, but his theology out to lunch because he's never spoken in tongues himself, seen the abuses of tongues and so throws out the baby with the bathwater. It's a mistake that people commonly make. They will drive out demons, speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Notice verse 18 does not say go on a snake hunt, collect rattlesnakes, and hope you don't get bit. That's not what it is. Next Sunday, do not bring your snakes to church. I don't care what your background is or who practices that. It doesn't say bring your snakes to church and let's pass them around and see who gets bit and who doesn't. <sighs> Don't play with snakes and drink poison to show other people how spiritual you are. Don't put the Lord your God to a foolish test. Matthew said it. Luke says it, and they both quoted Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. What this is is a, it's a promise of divine protection. Like when Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and was gathering up firewood to keep warm, and there was a viper that came out and bit him, and they said, "Oh, yeah, it must be a murderer or something." You know, he escaped. Judgment going to Rome, and so, and the shipwreck survived the shipwreck, so God's going to get him with this snake. And he shook off the snake in the fire, nothing happened to him. That's what this passage refers to. Doesn't mean you go out and gather snakes, doesn't mean try to make friends out of it. it. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. But if you find yourself in Paul's predicament, it would be helpful to lean on this promise that they'll pick up snakes with their hands as Paul did and not be hurt. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. This does not say, let's bring your strychnine and Drano to church next week. I'll take a swig and a swallow and see what happens. That's not what it says. But if in this time of persecution, at a time where Roman, Roman people and politicians were being poisoned left and right, if they force you to drink some poison, God will make sure that until your time is through, it won't harm you. It's a supernatural intervention from God. It does not encourage us to go out and drink poison deliberately and on purpose. That's not the context. Paul didn't carry around snakes with him, but when he found himself bit by one, God made sure it didn't harm him. So don't carry around poison with you. I don't want to see your snakes. Do not bring them to church. Do I believe in rattlesnake handling? Yeah up there at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, I think that's a great place for them to handle all the snakes that I ever want to see. There's a reason that we don't like snakes much. Eve started talking with one in the Garden of Eden. It has not worked out well since. I encourage you to avoid snakes. But if you pick one up and you're on God's missionary calling and you're in the work of the Lord, you can count on divine intervention. Verse 19 then, After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Jesus told us in John 14, he's going there to prepare a place for you and I. And Jesus said, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you. We call that the rapture. Take you so that where I am, you may be also. So someday we're going to hear the trumpet call of God in 1 Thessalonians four seventeen it says we're going to be caught up and meet the Lord in the clouds and so be with the Lord forever. That's what we're looking forward to. That, strictly speaking, is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. We read about his second coming in Revelation 19 and verse 11 and following when he comes back to this earth to establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. The rapture of the church precedes that by seven years. We're looking forward to his coming again, but the second coming, strictly speaking, is when he establishes his kingdom in Revelation 19. Shake your head and say, that's clear. Uh, Maybe, I'm not sure. Some of you don't know whether you're pre-tribulational in your rapture position or mid-tribulational or post-tribulational, and all of you are pan-tribulational. What? What's that mean? I don't know what it means, but it's all going to work out in the end. Everything will pan out in the end. Well, you're right. God will take care of us. After Jesus, verse 19, had spoken to him, he was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by signs that accompanied them. This is the word of the Lord. Every one of these guys was not especially gifted with the gift of evangelism, and yet every single one of them was able to share their faith. They had the boldness and confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of Pentecost, they had the supernatural empowering of God's Holy Spirit to do what the book says, to live holy lives, to share their faith, to not compromise with earthly values. The church today has been set apart for God's holy purposes, but he needs you, and that's why he put you where you're at in life today. Those next-door neighbors of yours, they need Jesus. Have you told them? The people that you work with, they need Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Share your faith with them. Tell them how you got saved. Because this great commission that that started with the angelic annunciation and then Jesus telling them, in Matthew 28, applies to every one of us. Don't wait for the gift of evangelism to fall on you. Don't think that I can't share my faith because I'm not Billy Graham. Nobody's asking you to preach to hundreds of thousands of people simultaneously in great big venues. Nobody's asking you to do that. Most conversions take place one-on-one. Why is that? Because hyenas travel in packs You try to minister to 20 people in your office, they'll all turn on you and make fun of you in a second. Get them one-on-one, it's a whole different issue. Then you're the one with power and authority, not them. You're the one with answers and they have none. They need Jesus. So wherever you're at today, make sure that the word of Jesus is found on your lips regularly. Look for Christians to fellowship with, whether it's in the doctor's office or the workplace, but look for opportunities to insert Jesus into the conversation. I know we live in weird times where there's so much saber rattling on the world stage and and political things going on in Washington today, and you don't know where it's all going to end. Can I tell you, Jesus is coming back soon. He knows where it's going to end, and I don't need to. I just need to be faithful to Him between now and the time He comes for me. That's all. Be faithful. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? It's good to be able to stand in your presence and to cast all of my cares upon you, Lord. We can get so easily rattled by the things that we read in newspapers or watch on the evening news. We hear one thing, we hear another thing. Wars and rumors of wars and civil uprisings. Things are winding down just the way you predicted so long ago. And I know you're coming soon, Lord. You gave the nation of Israel 2,000 years to share its faith in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. And we, the church, have had 2,000 years to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ since. I know you're coming soon for us, Lord. You've already come for some of the saints. They've passed through death's door and walked right into eternity with you. My pastor included. My mom and dad included. These are people that we were able to share our faith with. And there are many that still need to hear what we believe in. Your word we cling to with absolute hope and confidence. We know it to be the word of God. Our prayer is that you would do supernatural things in us, Lord, that you'd quicken our spiritual pulse and help us to shake off the Laodicean lukewarmness that characterizes the end times church these last days. You said that you'd rather us be ice cold or red hot, but lukewarm in between makes you sick to your stomach. So put a fire in us, Lord, that Pentecostal fire that descended upon the disciples like tongues of fire. May they descend upon us. Would you fill us again, Holy Spirit? Maybe we just need a personal Pentecost. Maybe what we need to hear is that mighty rushing wind blowing on our faces. Change us, Lord, because the hour is late and the world's need is desperate. So we seek you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and give you glory as we recommit ourselves fully, completely and 100% Father into your hands in Jesus name Amen